Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Susan Dennehy introduces us to four natural mothers who talk openly, for the first time, about adoption and reunion from their point of view. In A Pocket of Time. Maria lives at the foot of the Dublin mountains with her husband. Come on out into my studio. Oh God, I can't do anything about the weather. She's a painter. It'll be nice and snug in there. Mind the step there, yeah? Now. Maria describes her studio as her private place. A place where she can be herself completely. Outside her studio, Maria tells lies. She's been telling lies since 1976. In that year, Maria became pregnant, and because she wasn't married, she went into hiding. When her baby was born, he was placed voluntarily for adoption. And Maria went back to work and the life she had before with a secret instead of a baby. You can see little photos of me painting out of doors. That's when I'm really happiest, but... Unlike the women of the 50s and 60s, Maria was not placed in an institution. No interruptions. Put on classical music, I like to paint. But adoption was still considered a better option than becoming a single mother right up until the 1990s in this country. Here, Maria and three other natural mothers tell the truth about adoption and reunion from their point of view. I still haven't completed the light there and I still have to make the darks darker. My name is Christina and um, I'm age 53 and living in Dublin. Uh, born in County Carlow. Uh, I have two sons, my son Adam, who was born in 1980, and then my son Oliver, who was born in 1988. To be honest with you, I mean, I remember saying that I wanted my son adopted, and but deep down I didn't. It was almost like I was just floating along with the idea for adoption, because I don't ever believe to this day that any woman that gets pregnant wants to place her baby up for adoption. Why would you want to separate from your own child? Louise has four daughters. She raised three of them. She said goodbye to her first baby girl in 1986. But anyway, I remember the last day, I was in the hospital for about five or six days and I remember the last day when I was, was leaving. And I actually brought her down to the ward and had the curtains around and it was like my last time talking to her and spent, you know, whispering to her and, you know, that she, I hope that she would understand what I was doing, that I always loved her and, you know, that this is the reason that I was doing it for her and um, that she wouldn't hate me and that she would be very happy and, um, you know, those kind of things, so. Okay, so my name is Anne. Anne lives by the sea on Dublin's north side with her husband Eamon. For many years, people close to Anne didn't know she was a mother. I had given birth to a son when I was 20 and and he was adopted. And I couldn't talk about it. It was uh, the pain that I felt in uh, every time I started to talk about it was just overwhelming, so I didn't. Adoption became legal in Ireland in 1952. By the late 60s, 97% of all babies born outside marriage were placed for adoption. In the 70s and 80s, adoption was still considered a win-win solution to non-marital births, which were on the rise. 
I was dating this guy for the summer who was from somewhere in County Wicklow. We had a very kind of a fun, um, naive kind of 17-year-old relationship. And, uh, and then he kind of um, disappeared into the mist. And then I met some older guy and that was uh, um, like, a, actually, that was a one-night stand. I remember being really attracted to him, although, of course, I would never have even known that language of being attracted. I just I just loved the smile of him and uh, and enjoyed his company. And I can't actually remember when we started going out. It was at that time. When was it? Early, early 80s, late 70s, you know, and there was uh, anti-nuke march, marches to go to. And, you know, we were all out to save the world. And then there was music festivals and... And we would meet in town and we'd be in sorting out the world in Bowes pub over Point Guinness and... I think we were both two unhappy souls who met and kind of um, um, found, um, you know, comfort in each other, but yet we, weren't, we wouldn't have been right together. I know that for a fact. Um, well, look, I think I, I kind of knew I was pregnant from the moment it happened and... Um, I was living in a flat at the time with two friends and we, the three, three of us were going out with three friends. So it was a bit of fun, really. You know, I hadn't ever envisaged anything like that happening. And um, I went, I remember going to um, the family planning centre in um, Sing Street. And although you're hoping against hope that you're not pregnant, and then obviously I was, so it was positive and I just cried, you know, just really couldn't believe it. Um, but then I would have said it to Lorcan. I can't remember his immediate response, but I know we just talked about it like this was something, yeah, we, we could get a flat. And so it was more about when I was going to tell my parents, when I was going to tell my parents and the package was I was going to tell them that I was pregnant and Lorcan and myself were getting a flat and that was grand. And then, uh, and he just said, I just can't go through with this. And... I said to him, that's fine. I can't tell you in the moment, it was just, I just said that's fine and I just, we had a conversation probably about something else because I think I, I was able to do that, just shut off. And I, I think when I went home that night, I was going, oh, Jesus, what, what am I going to do? Wait a minute, what's, what's happening here? Despite the introduction of a small social welfare payment for unmarried mothers in 1973, the reality was that official and social attitudes continued to condemn sex outside of marriage and single motherhood until very recently in this country. To be honest, we were in a small enough house in the sense that I was so ill, my mum soon realised I was pregnant and we went to the doctor. He just pointed his long skinny finger at me and looked over his glasses and he said, um, adoption. If you were stupid enough to get pregnant, how do you think you could look after this baby? And uh, my mum was there, and <laughs> God love her. She didn't battle him. I think she was just so upset and um, worried, I think, at that point about me and worried about the shame. Yeah. Like, my, my dad's advice at the time was he really, really thought the better better thing for me and for the baby was for the baby to be adopted. I thought that was ridiculous. 
And I, I didn't give it any thought. And then when Lorcan said that, I, I don't know why I started thinking, because I thought, how am I supposed to rear the baby? How am I supposed to be with my baby? How am I supposed to earn to sustain us? I think if anybody actually said, I'll give you the money. And I think that's what was being pointed out to me. How are you going to be able to afford to look after your baby? And so suddenly all these questions, whereas when the two of us were in it together, I had the answer. I have to say now, I suspect that if I had just gone ahead, I know I would have got support from my family. But I didn't, I wasn't hearing it. I wasn't, I wasn't being told you would have that, that I would have that support. And I guess I believed that I wouldn't. But I, I know that, that I know that they would have given it to me once they had seen the little baby. I know they would have. I know now, but I didn't then. You know, my parents, they're good hearted. They would have loved that, that baby. Um, and, and we would have found a way. Do you know, I, I, I do feel we would have found a way. The Irish adoption machine was well-oiled by the early 80s when Christina and Anne had their babies. Myself and my mother and um, my sister-in-law, I remember going to this to visit a social worker in, it was either a Kilkenny or Carlow, I think it was in Kilkenny at the time. At that time, there were 13 registered adoption agencies operating in the Republic, whose sole purpose was the facilitation of domestic adoptions. And... Um, so it was a big kind of old um, Georgian house. Um, there were two women, one woman who ran the the organisation. She kind of did all the secretarial work. And then there was the social worker that I would see. And then there was a suggestion made that I um, would stay with a family, like in a hideout place in Dublin, so that I wouldn't be seen. You know, when you're a family, when you're a member of a family, you're a member of that community. And if you're shunned out in some way, like that's very, very hurtful. And I think that stay, has stayed with me for, the re- for all of my life, to be honest with you. It was common practice for the young women to be sent to live with a family outside their own area once the pregnancy started to show. Anne felt welcomed and supported by the family she stayed with. Maria and Christina felt lonely and uncomfortable during that time. On one of my checkups in in the Coombe Hospital where Adam was born, um, I had mentioned this to one of the doctors and um, he was extremely compassionate and said, you know, Christina, you don't need to be in this situation. You're going through enough right now. So he actually allowed me to stay in the hospital. I was like living there and I was... Actually, that was the most relaxed, happiest times that I had during my pregnancy. Because I felt actually accepted there and I felt comfortable and I actually felt safe. And I remember there was one lady who was quite confined to her bed and I used to go on little messages for her and stuff like that. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, that was the best time of it. Yeah. Again, you had this thing in your head that you couldn't wait for the baby to be born because that was the day when your life was going to get back to normal and you were going to start being, you know, going out with your friends again and, and, and living life the way it had been. On the other hand, I 
bought books about pregnancy and I was reading and looking at how, you know, what the baby was like and I was buying magazines, you know, I found when I was going to the shops, I was looking at baby clothes. And so again, it's this kind of protection mode. You're in this duplicity, double life thing, you know, on one hand, you don't want to be pregnant. On the other hand, you're getting attached to this baby, you know. And I do remember feeling, oh my God, can I do this? Is this, you know, how how will I get through this and will I be able to do it when the day comes but you just keep going and you tell yourself you're counting down the days and everything will be fine once the baby's born. That's probably the the vivid most vivid image in my mind of, of lying there with all these green cloths over you and and the and the mask in me to push and and that's when I saw him as he was being lifted. I kept saying I'll close my eyes, I'll keep my eyes closed and and let him go. But I, I couldn't. I just I just lifted up my head and opened my eyes. And I just saw this gorgeous gorgeous little little creature, little being. And uh and then I closed my eyes really quickly. Thankfully he was healthy and um I always remember his fingers. The skin was real dry, you know, because I had went over my time. So he was well developed. And um, I remember liking that. It kind of gave me um, a security in a sense that he was going to be okay. And that he'd get through this and that he'd get through growing up. I wrote a little letter to my son when I was um, in there on the little sheets that they give you, you know, the little napkin sheets. And um, I was writing the letter to, I suppose, give him reasons why I wasn't keeping him. Yeah. I felt deep down it wasn't right, but I was trying to justify it, yeah. I'll have a little look for it here now. Okay. Yeah. No, letters written but not sent. It's uh, fading because it was written in Byro um, 38 years ago. So um, it's probably it's my first letter to him. I've written him lots, but you are a very much loved baby. I'm sure you will bring much happiness to your adopted parents. And as you have brought to me, as I am unmarried and you are such a beautiful little boy, I feel you would miss out on so much without a father and security of two parents, a father especially. That was my first letter to my yeah. And then why is it not finished? I've never been able to really finish letters to him. It's kind of unfinished business. I know a nun came in and said to me that a lot of women in your situation give the first item of clothing to their child. And would you like to do that? And I remember looking at her and I thought she was insane. I thought she was completely insane. How could she ask me? How could she ask me that? Did she not know that if I just gave a half of a second of a, of a look that I, I wouldn't be able to leave without him. I wouldn't be able to leave the hospital without him. I, I couldn't do that. And I just, but I just, I didn't, 
I wanted to scream at her. I wanted to just scream like, don't be so fucking mad. Don't be insane. Just get out of here. But I didn't. I just said, no, no, thanks. But the adoption society that I um, choose, one of the things that they allowed was that there would be a photograph. I mean, when I think about that, how bizarre that is. Imagine having to be giving permission to get a photograph. It's almost like, OK, you're to take one photograph now and that's it, you know, no more. So I got a photograph taken and I still have it to this day and a lovely black and white photograph that I actually have here with me. And this is one of my very few keepsakes. Um, so it's a lovely photograph of um, me sitting in the bed holding Adam and he's uh, very dark hair. He still has quite dark hair and his eyebrows are quite thick and dark. And he's very distinctive, mature looking face, beautiful lips and um, nose is kind of broad. Yeah, so his head is very close to me. And I remember even when I look at this photograph, I remember the smell of his skin. I remember that. I can smell it now, even when I'm talking about it. Actually, for some reason, made the hospital stay longer. I was there for, I think, nine days. And um, I took some photos of him, but if sister or anybody found me taking a photo, I was reprimanded. <laughs> because I was advised all the time just to forget about him. You'll get married, you'll have children of your own. <laughs> In other words, he wasn't my own. For Maria and the other natural mothers, leaving the hospital was the point when they began to really suppress their maternal feelings in order to cope with the separation from their babies. And I remember going home and again then this is me thinking, yes, this is my life back again. It's, you know, I remember going upstairs and putting on a pair of jeans. I remember looking at my stomach in the mirror and thinking, that's my baby's gone, that's my tummy, you know, it's, all, it's gone. And my body just looked strange. And um, anyway, I put the jeans on and myself and my friend went down to the local and we bought, I think, two bottles of beer each and came back to the house. And this was like in the afternoon. And again, this is me sort of thinking, yeah, here I'm single again and I'm, you know, I'm living the life. And sure, I didn't enjoy the beer at all. I didn't, you know, but it was just fooling yourself that, you know, here we go. This is the start of my life again. That like the last nine months have, have just been a Bobby Ewing dream in Dallas or something that they haven't actually happened, you know. Um, that is, it's just like it was, it was something minor that's happened, a little mishap, you know. I have to say there was a real split between what was going on exteriorly and what was going on interiorly I was completely asking anybody they were I was very much coping Anna's coping because she's made this decision and then inside um I just seemed to be it was complete chaos inside and in between the two was just I was dazed babies had to be 6 weeks old for the adoption to be legal clearly they couldn't go home with their mother for that time the, the social worker told me afterwards that she took um, my daughter in the taxi and the taxi man commented on how beautiful she was. And, you know, she told me all this and brought her out to um, Black, uh, Temple Hill in Blackrock. Some went to foster homes, others to religious-run nurseries where the mother could visit. It was 
a, a convent and you would go, it was in a, a large building, as you would expect, and you walk in, big hallway, and, you know, you would ring ahead and make an arrangement and say to them you were calling at such and such a time. Well, it's very modern cover. I think it's as old as um, he is, so um used to keep me sane. And it starts off with a cute little photos of him in his cot and me feeding him. And they would bring you in to a little room off the hall that would have maybe three armchairs in and a little sort of small coffee table. And they'd say to you to sit there and wait. And then they'd go and bring um, your baby to you. Um, that was would have been in the room waiting to go into the nuns. And um, that would have been in the car before we got out to go into the nuns with the um, baby. Um, and then you'd spend about an hour with her. And then they'd knock on the door an hour later and then they'd take the baby and bring her back upstairs and then you would go home again. And and that was the the routine. This is, um, he's also asleep for that visit and he's holding my finger there. At least I'm probably holding his. <laughs> and another one, my mum holding him, looking sad. I don't look as sad because I don't think it had dawned on me. Um, and there's some more. There's the little rattle I used to amuse him with. I think I used to bring that photo everywhere with me. That was beautiful. So gorgeous. Handsome young chap. And even though during those six weeks, that six-week period when he was in the nursery. I do remember very vividly going back to the social worker and saying to her that I had changed my mind, I wanted to keep him. And uh, she strongly convinced me to, to continue with the adoption and then told me, said things like, you know, you'll end up living in a council flat and... You know, is that the kind of lifestyle you wanted? And you know, the ironic thing about it is, was that nine, ten years later, I was living in a council flat and I lived there for a very long time. And I survived it and raised my second son, Oliver, there. Once the baby was six weeks old, the mother was required to sign an adoption order that legally separated her from her child. I remember the day of the signing very vividly. Um, I remember feeling extremely emotional and I remember feeling very nervous and I remember um, the social worker parking the car in Kildare Street in Dublin and um, there was no parking discs or anything like that in those days <laughs> or no clamping <laughs> And so he could park very freely. Um, so she parked the car and I remember, and I was called by my pet name in those days, and she turned and looked at me and she said, Tina, I know this is difficult for you, but when we go up the stairs and we go into the office of the solicitor, there's one thing I don't want you to do. I don't want you to start crying. And I just took a gulp, as I often did, and and just went with her. I didn't even listen to the words, to be honest, which I just couldn't. I never realised that till now. I actually never listened to the words. God, when you think about that, I'm not listening to the words of something so important. 
In the matter of an application made for the adoption of um, my name, single, yeah, there were three parts highlighted. Um, I am the mother of the child. I did not marry the father of the child. The child is not less than six weeks old, been born on. I know the religion of the male. Um, I understand that the nature and effect of an adoption order is that I shall lose all parental rights and that I shall be freed from all parental duties with respect to the child. I just see and recognise my signature, yeah. And afterwards, myself and the social worker had come with me. We went over to, um, on the opposite side of the road, closer to O'Connell Street, a pub called The Oval, and had a cup of coffee. And I remember thinking how many other women have been in this bar with this social worker, having come from that same solicitor's office and sat in this bar the same. You know, how many of me has have the barmen seen sitting there, do they know? You feel everybody knows, everybody knows what you've just done and you know. And then I got back on the bus and went back to work. And that was it. Um, when he was going away, I had this vision of him being, going to this family and that they would care for Monrerum, but I also had this fantasy at that point that he would come and find me. And I think that's what um, helped me or not helped me, but made me let go because I always believed I would. It wasn't forever. <laughs> I didn't realise. <laughs> Thirty years later, thirty-eight years later, I wouldn't have met. Yeah. You're listening to a pocket of time on documentary on News Talk. In Ireland, between 1952 and 2012, over 44,000 women gave their babies up for adoption believing they could go back to the life they had before. Living after that, you don't really live. You have this numbness, like there was a numbness. And then this secrecy, like, you know, like living my life and not being able to talk about about my baby, especially when it came to talking about how many children you had. I mean, that I found very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. Because I would say I have one son, and yet I had two. So every time I said I said that, I feel that there was this light inside of me was being diminished every time I said it. And then my friend Jackie asked me a question one day, and she was pregnant herself on her first child, and towards the end of her pregnancy, she just said, what was it like, Anne? What was the labour like? And nobody had asked me that before. I guess nobody had acknowledged that that I knew what it was like. And so I, I answered her very quickly and said, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. But I can remember the moment uh, we were in the car, she was driving me up to Dundalk. And I, I can remember it was like a physical feeling within of something cracking, like a dam cracking. Well, I was rigidly told by the adoption society that I don't get in touch with them, that I can't make any contact with Adam until he was 18. So boy, was I always waiting for that day. Like I spent my life wondering, you know, maybe when he was eight, what does he look like now? You know, is he into sports? You know, especially times like Christmas and of course his birthday was always the biggest, the most difficult thing was his birthday each year. So I suppose after the after 10 years of of not being able to 
think about my son and when when the dam burst, let's say, um, I found I couldn't, I was thinking about him all the time. My big fear was that that he wasn't well in the world. Then one time I remember I thought I saw him on the street and then another time I wanted to break into the adoption agency and then one of my friends says, come on, Christina, you're crazy enough. It'll be all over the news. <laughs> you know, so um, it was... <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I could so see myself doing it and ripping all the filing cabinet over and saying, just fuck this, I'm going to get him, you know. And I did get moments like that. And it was like really crazy, you know. And, but who wouldn't, you know? I, God, who wouldn't? When I would ring the agency, you never got the impression that they were very happy about you contacting them. It was always like that they were kind of busy, um, that they would ring the parents and find out a little bit of information that they would ask for photographs. So I did get some photographs um, when she was about six months old. And then I think a few months later, I rang and asked for some more. And I was told this was the last photographs I was getting. I don't know whether this was from the agency making this decision or the adoptive parents, but I did get some photographs of, um, of her when she was one. And these are the few photos I have of him um, that I was sent by the family, and he's dead cute. And I just see he's a little plaster. <laughs> In each of the photos I've noticed he's a plaster on his knee there. And I notice he's got an expression there that is a um, a kind of the tongue-in-cheek expression that um, <laughs> is a family trait, yeah. But what age is he um, I don't know what age he is, but... Um, He's really long limbs anyway, and yeah, I don't know what, this is his communion. This is the final one I got from the family of him. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, his 18th birthday came and I went back to the adoption society and it was, um, and that was very strange to go back into that same building 18 years later, sit in the same room, look at the same social worker exactly the same social worker and say you know I, I really I really want to know about Justin when Adam was born he wasn't Adam he was called Justin and that was the name that I had picked for him and then that's the first more or less the first thing after we had a little chit chat about what I was doing etc and then that was she said to me well Christina, he's now not Justin, he's Adam. So I had to, you have to uh, kind of retrain your your thinking a bit and then try and see him as Adam, Adam, Adam. And I remember for a few days afterwards, I kept actually saying it in my mind a lot. Now, to, for me, he looks very much like an Adam. Seems to suit him. It's a stormy day in Dublin. The rain is beating hard on the roof of Christina's apartment, but she hardly notices. Adam is visiting her home for the first time. Together, they are looking through her mementos of yeah, his birth in first weeks. Bit, um, I mean, if I'm totally honest, it's, it's hard to identify with Justin Anthony as my name because that's not my name. But um, It wasn't until 1999 that the Irish Adoption Board first released birth certificates identifying the natural mother to people adopted in this state. By that time, there was still no legal channel for natural mothers to trace their children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so it could be a spy. 
so I remember when I was living in Los Angeles at the time and I got the first email from him and I couldn't believe it. My heart just went real, like so soft. It was just amazing. God. I had to get up from the computer, leave the apartment and walk outside and walk around and then come back again 15 minutes or something later. In 2005, the Adoption Board finally provided a national contact register so that people like Christina and Adam, who were separated by adoption, could connect, provided that both are willing and open to contact. So I went, sat back down on the computer and then I opened the photograph and I, I just I really took, I was like blown away. It, I, it was a lot to take in and I was just so excited and I kept looking at them and looking at them and I think there was about five. And I was saying, oh Jesus, look at him. He just looks so great. He, he looks so handsome and he looks so well and, and he looks happy and God, it was such a relief. And then I started laughing and then I went from laughing to crying. And I remember then my son, my son Oliver, who I've raised, and then he's, he had known about Adam for a very long time, since he was about nine or ten. I had said, Oliver, I'm after getting an email from Adam and there's photographs. And he ran over to the computer and he says, oh, mom, show me, show me. I want to see what he's like. Adam, I, I think, well, no, I know that you haven't seen this before, but it's, it's a photograph that I actually took of you when you were in the nursery. Um, um, yeah. So I'd like to show you that. Sure. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Do you recognise yourself? Um, well, <laughs> I think I've changed a little bit. Yeah. Don't look too happy in that one. Yeah. Yeah. And you look. So Should have smiled for the camera though. <laughs> and you look so mature in it. It's, gosh, it's amazing. Number one on his baby girl, because he was number one. My number one. <laughs> one of them looks like it's got the Cookie Monster on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I just remember one day, like getting a very short email again, and it was just a few words, and said, Oh, I'm coming into Dublin. Will you be around? And I was like, Of course I'd be around. I couldn't believe this. I was like, Jump. I was here at the laptop. Like, I actually got up from the chair and started jumping here on my own, like jumping and saying, yay, he's coming, I'm going to meet him. Like I, it was really, it really surprised me. And um, I don't know, because I had a kind of picture in my mind that he would be talking about it for some time and, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember discussing it with my mum and dad and I remember mum just saying, yeah, you know, you should do it because you know, you never know what might happen and, you know, you don't want to ever have any regrets. And I suppose the way I put it forward was quite casual. Yeah. Just like, yeah, why do we, why do we meet up, you know? And, and then, it's very guy, isn't it? Yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> Try to play it down a bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think it was just before our 15th birthday, I got a contact from the agency uh, asking me to contact them. And this was the first time they had contacted me because I'd always been the one contacting them. So my first reaction was, oh my God, there's something wrong. Something has happened to her. So when I rang them, I was a bit panicked and they said, no, no, it's fine. Look, she has made contact with us and we'd like to talk to you. So eventually I did meet her and um, it was 
just it would have been just before her uh, 16th birthday and we met in the agency and it was great we we just talked and talked and chatted and the it just flew by I remember she was tall um you know a good few inches taller than me and um she just I suppose her coloring her hairstyle very similar to um to my own when I would have been that age um a sort of a a long kind of page boy sort of thing and um I remember showing her photographs of herself that I had taken of her when she was in the hospital and when she was out in the home in Black Rock. And I remember her saying, oh, I still have that teddy bear. And I was delighted that she did. <laughs> Sorry, it's Colm, it's Colm. Hello. Yes, you stay out there for a little while. It's early 2014. Anne's son, Colm, and his girlfriend, Paula, are home from Peru on holidays. They've arrived at Anne's house to have breakfast with Anne and her friend, Jackie. Anne and Colm have met several times since their reunion two years earlier. Monday the 14th of May, 2012. Um, now known as the magical Monday in May. And... Colin was home from Peru for his granny's 90th birthday and he had made contact before he came home with Jer, the adoption worker, and said, asked her, would she check with me if I'd like to meet him? Like, would I not? <laughs> so, so I was running down to Waterford um, to see my beloved son again um, for the first time in 30 years. Oh. You'll be busy in Fairban. And you're here. God, no. If I was busy, I will be... Only Anne and Colm really hit it off. We have a list. I know, we ticked one of them off last night. We went to the house we, yeah. and we did beauties. We did walk on the beach. We still have the whole... They're creating new memories. House. No, the Santa house. The happy house. Oh, the Santa house. Oh, <laughs> Oh, the mad... Oh, yeah, yeah. all the lights. And building their relationship. We didn't get the Zaytun kebab, I was No, I know. I'm Neary's bar for a jar. Oh. I'm mm. going to sing the song. I'm there. <laughs> Where's Neary's again? The one out? Chatham Street. Chatham Street. Don't know it. Oh, that's great. And so we went to Newtown, um, went down to the little sitting room. My friend Jackie had given us her camera and the whole thing was we were going to take photographs of Colum. <laughs> I kept saying, Eamon was going to take the photograph. So before Colm came, I was saying, now, you better check about the light. And he was going, yeah, it'll be fine. And I said, no, 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 it has to be perfect. <laughs> check, what does it look like here? What does it look like here? I was like a mad joke. And I was lying in bed and I got a text off Jer saying, Anne, Anne is here. I was like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> I better have a shower. <laughs> um, so... I took my time getting ready and started making my way over because where we were meeting was right beside my secondary school, my old secondary school. And I loved that drive over. And it was a very, it was a lovely, peaceful drive. And by the time I got there, I wasn't nervous anymore. I was really like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. Anyway, so then it was coming up to the time. So Ger brought Eamon upstairs and then... <sighs> I could hear them 
coming down and and I knew within seconds he was going to come into the room. I remember as a teenager having my first beer or two with my uncle um, and talking about Anne. And they were all mad to know, are you going to meet her? And, and Nanny would have mentioned Anne over the years saying, do I think about her? Because Nanny would have said a prayer for Anne all the time. You know, so this, this thing of I'm an O'Neill and no one else is, was never there. I'm an O'Neill for sure, but someone else as well, you know. It's funny, my head was trying to figure out, wait a minute, I don't want anybody here. How is your, I don't want your here. But she has to be here because she has to bring him in. And I, I don't want anybody else to be a witness to this moment. It, it's too private or, or it's too precious. But obviously, Jar has more experience than I have, so she very um, gently and tactfully opened the door and said, there's someone very special to see you. Um, and, and closed the door behind herself. And so there he was. <laughs> 30 years later, this gorgeous young, young man um, we just walked, it's not a big room, but we walked towards each other and we just hugged. And and I think I will never forget that moment, however long it was, was it seconds or a moment, I will never forget it till the day I die. It was just a sense of no separation. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't feel where I ended or he began. I couldn't. It was just. It just. It just felt like a. One. It just felt incredible. Well, after all the clicking with the cameras, <laughs> and asking wait waiters with a you know, here take my camera, take this camera, and click click click, um. Parting, it was amazing and it was interesting too because I just realised, you know, when we were saying goodbye and I didn't know if I would see him again because sometimes that can happen after the first reunion. Adam did email Christina the day after their reunion. They continue to stay in contact and Adam plans to meet Christina's other son, Oliver, this summer. But reunions don't always have a good outcome, as Louise discovered. After a number of years of being in touch and getting on really well, contact with her eldest daughter has all but fizzled out. I know I went into it thinking that all those last years would just melt away and everything would be wonderful and it would be great. And I think having met a lot of other birth mothers, they feel the same and it isn't like that. It's You're meeting an adult who you've never met before. You have well, who you met as a baby and you held in your arms as a baby, but you haven't met them as an adult. You don't know their personality. They don't know you. You're meeting a complete stranger as such, except for you have a, a blood relationship. And you want to meet, you want to get on with this person and you want to have a relationship, but you just have to recognise that it it is a stranger that you're meeting. It's not your baby. It's an adult person. And this relationship has to be taken slowly. The reunion, if in fact there is one, is not the end of the adoption story. 
We don't know yet how the story ends, because reunions are such a recent development in the history of Irish adoption. Colm in including me in his life and in his world um, is, is the greatest gift to me and, and it takes nothing from his relationship with his mam Mary. It, it takes nothing from that. He, he loves her deeply and, and I love to see that. And Mary, his mother, and and Anne, his mother, are are we're finding our way. The lasting memory, the really lasting memory, which brought a tear to my sister's eye in New Zealand when I told her as well, was that Mam said to Anne at one stage that you can't have him back, but I don't mind sharing him. And that was uh, that was my favourite favourite part of the bringing Anne over to Ferrybank. She's now been away for a number of years. She's been back most years um, for a holiday, but we've never managed to to meet up. And so I wrote her a letter saying that, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that you don't want to have any contact anymore and that I hope that this is not true, but um, I would I would respect her wishes. If I had known then what I know now about myself and I swallowed the lie of you'll get over it, um, I think it was a mistake. In the pocket of time between 1952 and 2012, over 44,000 natural mothers in this country suffered a loss that no reunion can repair. Despite her best efforts, Maria has yet to meet her son. He did make one visit to the Adoption Society where he actually collected his little medal. It had been lost in a filing cabinet, but he got it when he was around um, 21. And um, he was given a synopsis on me. And um, to be honest, some of the things were incorrect. The only par parts that are true is the Irish, Catholic and single. And um, he knows that I would dearly love to have contact with him someday. And he just hasn't come back to me on that yet. But he will, I hope. A Pocket of Time was produced by Susan Dennehy and funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.